I'm Ari Wegner. I'm the cinematographer of The Power of the Dog, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Ari Wegner, ASC, the director of photography of The Power of the Dog. Ari, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to talk to you. We, we talked a little bit before we started rolling. I was giving you some hints as to the topics we'll cover and just finished watching uh, The Power of the Dog today. And it is so good, so beautiful. There's so much to discuss. It's going to be a fun one. So thank you again for being on. Um, before we get to it, though, I want to very quickly mention our sponsor for today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. Visit gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy. And don't forget 10% off with code gocreative10. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast apps, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So thanks again, Ari, for coming on. Like I had mentioned at the top of the show, I just finished watching it this morning. And I mean, everybody loves it. It's it's doing so well. You're getting tons of praise, tons of acclaim, and for good reason. Um, what attracted you to this project at the beginning? Well, that's an easy one. Uh, it was uh, it's a pretty irresistible proposition. Um, the opportunity to work with Jane, um, an incredible book, a beautiful screenplay, um, New Zealand, uh, a long prep. <laughs> There was really no strikes against this one. <laughs> is that something you look for? Is the prep time a dis determining factor for you? I think a short prep's a bit of a red flag. Um, <laughs> and uh, as I'm sure you know, the, the film I think is really made in the prep. Um, uh, I heard someone say recently, which I will repeat, um, uh, to say, uh, fix it in prep. And I really think that's really where most of the things get fixed or where the, where the big kind of, uh, problems can start. If you haven't prepped something properly, once, once the trains left the station, you're in a totally different mindset and the it's, it's quite hard to go back to that, uh, considered calm, um, planning phase when you're just trying to, you know, finish a day and wrap on time, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I do commercial work for the most part, and even that, I mean, if it's if it's not figured out in prep, and obviously you need to leave some room for just random things that happen on set, but I'm, I'm a big believer in prep, and as well as you, it's like you kind of know if there's not gonna be a lot of prep for a project, you're not really setting yourself up for success, and it is a bit of a red flag. Like, what when, when a project comes to you and the prep is you know, prep doesn't really align with what you're being asked of. What are some of the things that you immediately become fearful of? Uh, probably first of all, is that the producers don't understand the the value of prep because it's one of the cheapest bits of filmmaking. You know, it's some people in a room with a internet connection or in a van with a camera, stills camera. It's, it's uh, I can't think of a better investment in your production than prep. And if that's where you believe you can save, it's probably a false economy. Um, so that's a, that's, it's for me, it's like a sign of other things that are maybe not aligned with how I think, <laughs> um, films are best made from a, from a top down perspective. Um, and then 
I start to imagine or ask myself how much meaningful time am I going to get with the director in a time where not just chatting in the back of a van but but sitting down for days on end with the script and in a calm way thinking about our ideas and how we want to shoot it um, and how long between those first conversations and some decisions that will need to be made about gear and schedule and crew and resources um, what's the buffer between have an idea and have to execute it and the shorter the prep is the closer that is and and it that can be um, it takes a toll when you when you're having to kind of give answers on things before you know they're properly thought out um, and then yeah I, I start to imagine the bits that didn't get time to be prepped when will we prep them probably on the weekends, uh, the morning of, on wrap, and that's not that's when you you really need time to be resting to be able to execute those plans. So that's where my mind goes <laughs> when someone says. And it sounds like yeah. it, it sounds like you had kind of a, a a unique relationship with your director on this particular project. I was reading in an article, I think it was in Vogue. You had mentioned that. Um, you had kind of a unique collaboration with her where there were moments where you were kind of hitting, you know, writer's block for, for lack of a better term, but just, you were hitting these frustrating moments where you just were kind of, you weren't as creative as you wanted to be in that moment. And Jane had kind of asked you to go for a swim or go for a walk and kind of like and embrace those moments. Talk to me about that and um, how that is unique and how that helped you. Yeah, I learned a huge amount from Jane in that in that regard. She's someone that really, I guess, knows herself, knows people, psychology. She loves, you know, you can see her films. She's someone that is very intuitive about uh, psychology and, and energy and um, she's just also very experienced and she and knows that within herself that you can't push an idea to come um, and in the way that you can, I don't know, clean your house really quickly or get your car serviced as quick as you can. You know, it's it's a creative ideas are kind of uh, there is something slightly um, intangible to them and pushing harder or going faster won't, won't make a better idea necessarily and to be honest with yourself when you know that you're not getting anywhere and, and and you just you need to change something or, or or take a take a break, think about something else, um, and trust that the idea will come by the time it's needed, and um, that working yourself into a state of panic or anxiety about the idea not coming is is not going to make the idea appear. Um, or if you do, it will be an idea that's it's like a band aid idea. It's not actually a good idea. You'll wake up tomorrow and realize like, what was I thinking? Um, yeah. that's it, it that's one of those things where it's like yeah in theory the idea of saying i'm not going to push myself to solve this problem i'm not going to push myself to be creative uh, i'm going to let the ideas just kind of flow as they happen but in theory it's great mm. but when you are thinking to yourself like okay if i take this time to do this we could delay the day. There's an entire crew waiting for me. There's a, there's a, so much pressure being put on really everybody. Mm. But in your but there's pressure being put on you to come up with solutions to problems, come up with creative ideas as you go. And as much as you may want, in, in just the colloquial sense, as much as people may want to have that extra time, it doesn't necessarily happen. So like, 
Is there a trick? Is there something you learned on this set working with Jane that kind of allowed you those moments of pause? I guess specifically talking about swimming and, and napping and cooking, <laughs> that's more of what can happen in pre-production. Um, that's when, when it comes to the shoot day, um, you're in a very different environment and every second, every minute is incredibly valuable. Um, and for us, it was that if we'd done as much homework as we could and, and prepped scenes incredibly well, then that's a great safety net to arrive on the day and, and you're not starting the day with a kind of anxiety of how are we even going to do this? You've got a plan A. And then if the plan A doesn't work, uh, by the time you're on set, you're usually talking about a frame. So then you can start thinking about specifically what's not working. For Jane, it's usually an emotional reaction. It feels camera feels too distant or something feels too cold or it's too manipulative or it's too pretty, it's too cliche or too expected um, or it doesn't have the right spirit to it. Um, and then as a DP, you're kind of translating that into like, oh, we on maybe we're on too wide of a lens or we we should um, keep the camera still or um and and jane also has great ideas and solutions as well so um i don't think there's a trick necessarily other than homework <laughs> there's no shortcut to um to the homework but i think being in a uh the the homework allows you to arrive on set with a playful mindset um and knowing because you have something to fall back on um and then then you can allow other ideas in um, that may arrive on the day because you've kind of been through all the ideas that you could have come up with before you got there. Um, and then you, you're excited to know what new ideas are going to come on the day. One of the themes in the power of the dog, um, that really resonated with me is this theme of loneliness. And I think that you tackle it so many different ways, certainly with Rose and Phil and all of the characters have certain elements of it, but, I think that there's a lot in the lighting and there's a lot in the cinematography and framing that lead to this idea of loneliness and kind of explore loneliness for each of these characters. Can you talk to me about the way that you approach that in the film? Mm, yeah, everyone is very lonely in this film. Um, and there's, I think what, if you break it down one more level further, what, what makes everyone lonely is everyone kind of has like a secret that they can't talk about is quite kind of insecurities or, or taboos that um, because of social stigma or the time or just not having the language or in Phil's case, maybe it's just very dangerous to talk about the things that um, are troubling them, but that cannot be spoken. So there's something very lonely about being alone with your problem. Um, and so there's a few ways we kind of got into that. One of them was, um, even though the characters are not saying what they're worried about, that's, that's kind of their problem. Um, you do see it in other ways in their body language and especially in their hands. We really, um, might notice in the film throughout, there's a lot of close shots of hands. And I think the hands really show that, um, despite what this person is, projecting or presenting as 
there's other things going on below the surface, whether it's Peter's kind of the anxiety that we see in his kind of comb. Um, but Phil, there's a kind of um, nostalgia and and longing in the way and, and a kind of erotic energy to the way he would polish the saddle or, or when he's with Peter, this kind of um, sexual tension in, in, in the way that he's kind of braiding the rope um, or rolling, rolling cigarette. cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. it's very... Um, there's a, a lot of emotion in the, in the hands. Um, and then I think for me, lighting wise, um, it was really important for me that I think the eyes also tell a lot and you can, um, uh, you can see, you know, when someone's on the verge of crying or they're really trying to hold back what they're feeling that we see that in the eyes. And for me, it was important that, um, we had great eyelight on a very practical kind of very specific one element was if, if you have eye if you don't have eyelight, um, it can be difficult, um, to either know where to look in the frame or you just can't quite see that the eye is getting, you know, there's tears forming or there's real anger there or there's anger plus kind of sadness at the same time. Um, and to get that, to see the complexity of that performance, um, it's really necessary to see the eyes, but I also love dark photography. So my solution to that was the frames can be dark. As long as we have eye light, we'll, I trust that we'll, we'll know where to, as a viewer, we know where to look and that's the eyes. Is that the biggest concern for you and just maybe cinematographers in general, as much as you can speak for them is wanting to embrace darkness, but the fear that the audience may not know where to look. Is that, is that one of the biggest concerns? Yeah, it's a bit of a juggling act of what can we get away with, maybe. Um, and then also um, understanding there's other elements that go into it. There's music, there's sound, there's the shots before. Um, yeah, I think for some reason darkness is, is inherently kind of satisfying to to watch. And maybe it is because when a, when a frame is dark, you really can direct a viewer's eye with light, with not much light, um, whether that's a kind of slither of um, light hitting something or, yeah, you can, you really have more power to direct the, the eye with light when the frame is, is generally dark. And then there's other ways you can use darkness, like silhouettes play a big role in this and it doesn't, um, you can see still see someone's body language um, with the silhouette. So I guess for me, it's looking at the totality of the frame and asking ourselves, what's, what's the, what's the information this frame needs to give an audience and, and is, um, is my lighting helping that? Um, part of that information is kind of a, an atmosphere or intangible kind of tone as well as, as the actual kind of seeing a prop or seeing where's what someone's, um, doing in the scene. I want to talk about eye light for just a moment more because mm. I, I feel like eye light is one of those things where if it's done poorly, it's noticeable. If it's done correctly, you don't notice it. You just kind of feel it. And it just that one ability is such an art in and of itself is to, to light eyes correctly. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it was something that I wanted to talk about because so much of the performances in the eyes, um, especially in this film – what are some of the techniques that you use to make eye lights feel purposeful, especially in scenes where like 
there wouldn't really be a light there. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. how, how is it feeling natural when you're doing kind of an unnatural thing? Well, yeah, iLight is, for me, I think it's going to be a lifelong journey. It's really love, hate, you know, when you, when you find it and it's working, I'm sure you know how it is. It feels like everything in the world is fine. And when you can't find it, it's just, it kind of kills you for, for a moment. And, yeah. um, I think, uh, no, I've actually, I love highlight so much. I've, I've forgotten your question. Um, it, it, is there any wasn't, well, to make it, it feel clearly natural? It wasn't, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't a well-crafted question, I guess, but, but I think what it is, yeah. it, it's a difficult thing to do because it's a purposeful light that just, it's very directed. It's very purposeful. And those types of lights don't really exist in the world. Mm. So, mm. so how do you create eye light that feels natural? Mm. I guess I wouldn't always have an, an, a light that's just doing the eye light. Ideally it's a key light or, or a fill light that's, that's happens to work as an eye light, but, um, as it happens, actors tend to move, <laughs> so they don't <laughs> yeah. always look straight into the light that you want them to. Um, and and also, you want flexibility for someone to uh, be in the moment and have the performance that feels right. So, um, I think if it's again, it's like look at look at the whole frame. Does it feel natural? Um, I don't think it has to have a necessarily a um, a motivation because it, it, it's a glint. Um, it's a reflection, something. So, um, I think you can trust your, trust your gut, gut instinct on that one. But I, I like when eye lights at the bottom or the top and, and not so much in the middle of the mm. eye. Um, I would often try and get an eye light from down low. Um, I like that effect. Um, what do you tend to use? Um, I mean, I know technologies change over time, mm. but like for, for the power of the dog, what, what were you using for eyelids? Uh, all kinds of things, depending on the situation, you know, ideally it would be a window or something that's sliding the face as well. Um, in, uh, another situation if you know, Phil's sitting at a table and the tablecloth's white, there's a fair chance, um, that tablecloth could be something you could light up and, and get an eye light from that if it's not already lit. Um, and something like a dinner, that dinner party scene, we had a big top, uh, kind of a, a high, uh, big soft source over the top, which, which, um, if it's down low enough, we'll give, we'll give an eye light. Um, or I would sometimes bring a frame in like a diffusion frame in closer than the key to, um, try and, uh, get it, uh, into the eye. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, if all else fails, there's, there's a lot of, um, kind of various kinds of tubes, tube lights that, um, led tubes that you can just find somewhere. And it may that they may just be sitting on, might just be sitting on the floor or, um, uh, somewhere it's a, it's a really complex thing the eye because it's kind of like the slice of an orange you know it's like it's that strange shape it's a rounded shape but it's also thin um, and it changes throughout the scene because um, 
humans move around. So, um, again, I think it's a, it's going to be a lifelong learning experience. I like, but, and I also just watch light constantly. I watch when I'm sitting across from someone in a cafe or in a car and look, you see what the eyelight is and, if someone can stand you getting right up in your face, if you look really, really closely in the eye, you can see what's doing it. It will actually show you it's like a mirror. So um, also learning every day to see like what's, what is giving you the eyelight and then take a photo and remind yourself what it was. Um, yeah. Are you just randomly walking up to people in coffee shops and looking into their eyes? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mind me. I just need to, Get the answer to this question. Yeah. yeah. Don't mind me. I'm Sorry a cinematographer. It's fine. It's, <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, I want to I talk about the camera package and lens package for the power of the dog. Um, what was your, well, uh, what, simply that, what was your camera and lens package for the film? Uh, we shot Alexa LF. Um, that, was, that was an easy decision, actually. Pretty much um, every film I've shot digitally has it's been Alexa, and it's just... I know the sensor really well. I love, I love the curve and and the look that it that it creates on digital. So, do you um, test any others, or do you just say no? That you just know that's your camera. For something like this, which felt like a really big project, um, I was pretty hesitant to. I guess like, be changed. It felt like yeah, jumping in a new car. The the as you're about to drive the formula one or, you know, trying some new shoes on the, at the Olympics, like not, <laughs> that's what the stakes felt like. You can, you can tell what the stakes felt like for me. Um, you, it doesn't feel wise. There was going to be a lot of unknowns, um, between, you know, every film has unknowns, but, but it wasn't an element I wanted to add into the mix to say, um, plus this camera you've never used. Because no matter how much time you test something, you guarantee day one you're going to come across a situation that you hadn't tested. So that one was quite easy. Um, and then lenses, uh, we ended up going with the Panavision Ultra Panatar, which are a 1.3 times anamorphic. Um, that was a bit of a journey in terms of that decision making. Um, we initially actually started talking about um, – different aspect ratios and and for a long time we were planning to shoot 185 um uh and then as we started boarding um we found that our very would very diligently printed off all our 185 storyboards ready to be filled in and, and we just found ourselves drawing off the edges um and there are uh there just are a lot of um elements in this film which lead themselves to a kind of long shape whether that's the the mountain range the rope a line of cattle even like a, a big group of people at a dining table something about the width um was working for us and we kind of trusted our gut on that one and, and that um then kind of opened up the possibility of maybe we thought about maybe completely anamorphic and then um the 1.3 times anamorphic, I really uh, liked the effect in that it's it feels more spherical than anamorphic, but it's also got something, uh, uses a lot of the sensor, and, uh, yeah, not 
kind of a vintage lens. It's also like not too weird, you know. I didn't want the, I guess, the lenses to draw attention to themselves. For us, we wanted we really wanted every element of the film to be in balance and and drawing attention to the lenses didn't feel quite right. Um, so that was yeah, that was that journey. <laughs> well, yeah. w- when you're thinking about this film, you you know you're going to have these big, giant, wide vistas. And you also know that you're going to have those beautiful macro shots of hands like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So was there um, like a set of focal lengths that you sort of landed on and said, you know, this is going to be my palette? Mm. Uh, Jane definitely favors uh, long the longer lens type of um, photography. Um, and every director has their thing that they're naturally drawn to. It's quite a personal kind of gut preference, whether you love the wide, a wider look or, or long gets you, gets you going. So um, I think what, um, as I got to know Jane and her, her preferences, what I realized is what she liked about the long lenses is, is the ability to kind of, I guess, stack up storytelling elements in one frame and have everything feel a similar size. So you can have um, thinking of it, a shot in particular, it's um, in the film where the first time that Phil kind of coaxes Peter into the barn, um, we have a very long lens shot that has the mountains in the deep background. Then you've got the barn and in front of that Phil, in front of that Peter, and then in the foreground is Rose. Um, and and it's there's enough definition because also the camera's far away enough that each of those elements feels quite um democratic in a way there it's not it's not an over-the-shoulder shot of rose of peter with phil out of focus in the background small it's um a shot of all of these things together um and and when you have those elements stacked up like that um you well like not so much stacked but they're kind of in a tunnel um that we see um it allows you to actually have less shots because you can see the physical geographic relationship between everyone. You have a sense of place um, and you don't need to cut to Rose's reaction and then Phil's reaction and Peter and a wide shot for the landscape. It's, it's all kind of there in one, um, in one frame. Um, So yeah, we lived a lot on the um, hundred in the hundred range was, was a 7,500 was a, was a, was a pretty favorite. Um, we also had a 90 mil macro that we used a lot, which actually wasn't, isn't part of that 1.3 time set. Um, and, and a longer zoom, which I should know, but I've completely forgotten. <laughs> well, it was a while ago. <laughs> it was but a while it, back. But yeah. It is interesting to hear that you kind of adopted those longer zooms for, for these shots. Cause I think like, and, and, I think something that surprised me is that you do have so many of these wide, beautiful Vista shots, and you have them in what appears mm. to be longer lenses in some cases. I mean, mm. certainly you're using wides too, but the I don't think anybody looks at the big, giant mountain range and thinks, I'm going to shoot that with a long lens. <laughs> it, that, it just mm-hmm. seems like it, it's perfect for wide lenses. So what what is it about shooting, or I guess what were, what were your techniques for shooting these beautiful landscapes in kind of unique ways, because I think the film really does that. 
Mm. I think that comes from it's probably its origin is Jane's Jane's preferences, her kind of gut um, personal preferences, but the also because of the the nature of that landscape, which is that so vast you can you can take a camera back you can get in a car and take it down the road and you could shoot on a as long a lens as you can find um and it still be a wide shot you could even probably go to another mountain on the other side of the valley and still shoot it on a crazy long lens if you want to because there's nothing obstructing your um line of sight it's it's um mountain range and um i guess like plateau um or flatness um so i think those two elements together is what is what actually led us to that um just the distances are so big that if you go on a wide lens the mountains are going to start to feel very small um because they are um very far away (laughs) um further away than they probably appear visually um because they're really they're big and they're far. Um, and if you want them to feel big, um, then uh, a long lens is really useful for that because, like I said, it brings, uh, if you're back far enough, the elements that you've stacked up will be a more similar size. Yeah. So it, do, it does kind of create a different perspective than you're used to seeing with these large landscapes. And I also think that it does an interesting job of, um, like, when you when you put a character in front of it or you put mm. a house in front of it or horse or whatever is going on in the scene. <clears throat> You're not like dwarfing anything, if that makes sense. Like everything mm-hmm. still feels properly scaled, even though you have such a vast surrounding. That mm-hmm. I think is kind of the benefit of shooting with the longer lenses. It seems like that's what you're getting. Am I going down the Absolutely. right road with that? No, no, that's that's 100% true. And, and actually also having having things in frame that give us um, a sense of context for the scale. So when you see a, a house that you know to be huge and then behind that you see a mountain range which is four times as high than you, you, um, you, it feels big, bigger than if you just had a mountain range you've got nothing to compare it to um, and or a, a kind of really super long lens um, panning shot across a mountain range and it just keeps panning and keeps panning and keeps panning. Uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of different ways, I guess, to show scale and, and some of that comes from, um, I guess, like, yeah, context, having having something we know the size of against something we don't know the size of or we, we're learning the size of, which is mountain range, Yeah. One of my favorite courses on Filmmakers Academy is called Commercial Directing Masterclass. And obviously you guys know why, because I'm a commercial director and because it's taught by Jordan Brady, who's just a fantastic instructor and here with us right now, just for a minute. Now, one of the things you talk about in the course that I think is really interesting is you provide some guidance and insight as to how to get your career started. Like, how do you begin? No one knows how to begin. Well, here's what's crazy about commercials. Variety in the type of uh, work that you do is not your friend. It confuses people. How do I sell this director if she's got a documentary-style spot and a lifestyle spot and a pet food spot? So I recommend 
that that director would put herself in a box, have a reel, like four or five spots, even just start with three spots that all have the same tone. And I think if you enter the marketplace of commercial directing, you're going out to production companies or maybe you know someone at an ad agency and you show them three or four spots of this all cut from the same cloth, I think that is going to start you off much better than if you just go and say, here's my short film, here's my music video, and here's a commercial where people cry. I love that. That's a great tip and really good insight. And there is so much more where that came from. If you head over to filmmakersacademy.com and check out Jordan's course, Commercial Directing Masterclass over at filmmakersacademy.com. We got a question from JD on Instagram about, uh, he's asking, did you have a contrast ratio in mind when you were filming this? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I guess I've read articles about contrast ratio and I know the concept, but I probably, is it probably something I would give a number before we shoot? Um, but I'm, I'm obviously thinking of it, but maybe not as a number um, about how, I guess for me, it's like how much fill there is, how, how filled in is the, is the dark, dark bits, yep. <laughs> the dark side. Um, and as well, I don't, I don't think it necessarily needs to be one number across a, across a film. The chances are you probably can only achieve, um, you know, like a, a really contrasty look in some, situations and then you will find yourself outside in a day exterior and you can't maintain that it would look very strange yeah. um, or might be you know borderline impossible to achieve so um i would say it's like a yes and no i had a i had an idea of um that i wanted the interiors and the nights to have i guess strong contrast and for the faces like the landscape in a way to have um there's something so beautiful about the kind of beautiful imperfection. Um, I find perfection not actually very beautiful. I find kind of imperfection really um, magical and glorious. And the and the the landscape and the faces have have a kind of similarity that would shoot you know try and shoot the the landscape kind of late in the day when there's long shadows and that you get to see all the contours. And and I think about faces the same way. So you want to see the contours of, of great, beautiful faces. And um, you want to believe they're real people. If they feel like they're kind of in a fashion shoot all the time, then for some reason we just stop. We stop believing it. We know that's not what people look like day to day. Exactly. And then when you have those moments that kind of, those moments of perfection, I guess, if you will, within the film, it really stands out. Um, like you, I think there's a moment um, later in the in the film where Peter is like he lands in the doorway of that barn like just perfectly. He's kind of turned sideways a little bit, and it's that moment of like this. It it feels posed and purposeful in a way, but the fact that it, it's so sparing within the film, mm -hmm. you really notice it, and it, it and it feels organic because there's so few of those moments that everything just lands in perf uh, perfectly. So I think you guys did a really, really good job of that. I want to talk about just the general look of the film. 
Um, JD on Instagram also wants to know if you've had some Western films that you were re referencing during creating the look because, yeah, it is a Western, but I think this is kind of a, it's sort of a redefinition of what a Western is, not even just the look of it, but kind of like the masculinity of it. And just everything about this is a redefinition of our expectations of what a Western is um, in a really beautiful way. So, you know, thinking of all of those things, it has to culminate into a look. So talk to me about the look of The Power of the Dog. A tricky thing to kind of um, quantify because it's so many so many elements there's the things that are in the frame like the the locations and the actors and the costumes and the production design um then there's the lighting how you choose to light them or what time of day you choose to shoot those locations um then there's the lenses what what length lenses you go on and and the relationship between where's the camera compared to the actors compared to whatever's behind them there's the camera movement um then you can get into the grade and you know, change, make it go wild. Change it off. Really <laughs> inclined that way. Um, uh, so, yeah. Well, did you reference any any Westerns when developing this? We thing? actually didn't. Um, in many ways, Pap the Dog has the, it has like the ingredients of a Western, of the, you know, a ranch and cows and cowboys and, um, and, and a lot of the things you might associate with a Western on the surface, but in many ways it's, we weren't so interested in, in dealing with the, the kind of themes that, um, that a Westerns kind of do for me when I very, I'm going to be very, um, uh, condense it for the, for the purposes of this. And I, I know Westerns are a whole complex genre, but oftentimes there's a kind of big, uh, showdown of, physical violence that's leading up to like a head-to-head -head kind of um, two people who are disagreeing about something and there's probably going to be a gun involved and someone's going to be the winner. And for us, the idea of that kind of guns and physical violence was like, was just wasn't terribly interesting to us. What was interesting was uh, what, uh, what is it to be in a house with someone who who has got this like psychological violence? Um, psychological violence was a lot more interesting to us than the physical violence. And and uh, yeah, what what is it to be trapped in in a place where you don't want to be? And um, and how can someone with just you know the a foot's uh, playing a song on a banjo, whistling, uh, pulling a chair back, closing a door, walking upstairs and just looking at you in a couple of words, how can that destroy someone's psychology completely to the point where it doesn't matter if it's just as terrifying when to Rose that when Phil's in the room or he's not in the room, he's, he's 24-7 in her mind um, and... And then how does someone react when, when that person who's kind of crumbling is the person that they love most in the world? Um, so definitely, yeah, not, not the themes you'd usually associate with a Western, maybe even more of a kind of, sometimes think of it as a monster movie, like this monster that's in the house. Um, 
And yeah. That's an interesting analogy. And there is quite a bit of, well, it's violence, like you said, but it's like emo it's emotional mm -hmm. violence, as you mentioned. But I kind of thought, it's interesting to hear you say that, um, that that sort of traditional standoff and all that was not very interesting to you because I actually, when I was watching it, I, I kept I kept this theme in my head of like, okay, there, we're constantly redefining what a Western is. We're redefining what masculinity depicted in movies is, or in, in Western is. Um, I felt like you were sort of following some of the themes of a Western, but turning it on, turning it on its head. And one of the moments in particular was that piano slash banjo mm. standoff that we that you talked about. So just a, so there's a moment in the show in the in the movie where Rose is playing the piano and she's attempting to play this song and making some mistakes along the way. And we have Phil then um, playing the banjo in a totally different room, upstairs in his bedroom, but playing the same song with perfection. And there is so much tension in this moment that this to me was the gun standoff. This was like that mm -hmm. shot of the hands right next to the trigger and like, who's gonna, who's gonna shoot first? It was one of those Western feeling moments, but in this completely new redefined way. And it brings me to one of the topics I wanted to discuss with you, and that is creating tension in cinematography. Because on its face, that scene is just, okay, two main characters playing two different instruments. So what? But the way it was implemented was incredibly tense and really powerful. And I'd love for to, to hear about the ways that you made that scene mm. feel the way that it did. Yeah, you, you're very much correct. Like it, we thought of that, sometimes we call that scene the jewel and it is a jewel. They really, um, they're not, uh, yeah. it starts off like a jewel or a duet. And then, and then it becomes very clear that, um, Phil's not only playing it perfectly, he's kind of putting even his own spin on it. You know, he's an artist and she's kind of not even, she realizes she's not even at the level of a kind of student and he's gone beyond, he's doing the remix already and she's not even, can't even do the original. Yeah. Um, and yeah, tension as well. It's, it's a complex, um, thing. It's, we do know it's like incredibly satisfying to watch. It's something that we don't tend to seek out tension in our day-to-day -day lives, but when we see it on in a movie, we, we want it to keep going and we want it to be over at the same time. It really like gets, it's very memorable and it does create so the, the magic of cinema. Like you are feeling that some of what Rose is feeling really in your body. There's, there's muscle tension going on <laughs> um, if we've done our jobs right. So, um, I think tension is uh, we planned that the coverage there pretty pretty specifically um, to uh, be very with Rose. So there's there's one particular shot where the the camera's um, it's moving when she's playing and then it stops when she stops and it then it moves again when she plays um, and and you're very with her. You're in the flow and then you're like adrenaline like panic and then you get back in the flow and then you panic um uh and it eventually kind of drifts onto her once once she's really kind of given up she's been crushed by phil's artistry um but i think as well what it really does come down to information it doesn't sound very um romantic or like exciting but it's like you you need to set up 
some information in order to feel the tension as well. There's there's the idea of um, well, there's also everything that's happened up to the point of this scene where you've you've set up. Of course, yeah. um, you've got to see kind of Phil's um, tantrums and how manipulative he is and and what a kind of passive aggressive bully he is or just an aggressive person. Um, so there's that can't be underestimated how how much the setup comes they're not two complete strangers they've, they've got a history that's very already very um tense and she knows that uh she's not welcome in this place um and then she uh also knows that she's got a she's going to have to perform for someone very important so she's really already in a place of anxiety um where she's she's found herself in kind of a bind between uh needing to fulfill two needs that kind of to be discreet and keep to herself and not draw attention to herself and eventually have to be the center of attention. And, and so she's, she's already, uh, we go into this scene with all of that set up and then, then there's other the information that kind of slowly gets, um, told to us is Rose's closed. We see her closing all these doors. She's trying and we, we get the idea. She's, she's doing her best to not draw attention to herself. Um, but actually in part of the design of the whole house, um, which was really in many ways designed with this scene as its core important bit, some of the angles and all those doors, et cetera, um, and the eye line from the piano to fill um, the house. We started designing it really around this scene. So, yeah, you, oh, you wow. see her closing all these doors, but also it's it's she can't. She's already in trouble because she there is no space where she can be private. Um, so we have that piece of information. She's trying to close the doors and then we see her playing. We get some information that is, she's, she's good. She, she can kind of play, but she's not, um, she doesn't, uh, she can't do this particular tune. Um, and, and we see that she's lost. She's, she's quite lost in what she's doing. She's making a note and keeping going and she's almost forgotten for a moment. Um, about that tension and then we see a door opening we saw it we see a door that we that was previously closed is opened um i can't tell if it's before or after that we see phil a kind of glimmer of phil going upstairs um and the sound plays a huge part as well because usually phil's feet on the stairs are very loud and in this case they're they're silent she's missed it she's missed that information but we saw the information and then um yeah. Then we see a shot of, uh, might be getting the order wrong, but these are kind of the elements. Then the shots of Phil, uh, um, we've set up that he can see her, but she can't see him. And the shots of him are really almost what's in her imagination there, the big boot and the fingers on the banjo. And then the shots of Phil in that scene are very tight and very low angle looking right up. It's this accentuating the kind of him looking down and his um, kind of menace. It's like, I guess, metaphorically he looks down on most people, but especially Rose, and he is really up and she's down. It's a very basic kind of power thing that um, uh, we lent into heavily, but that up-down thing is also very, um, it is, as humans, we're like tapped into that. It feels uh, vulnerable to be the one that's down and the one that can't see. Um, and so the shots of Phil are also in many ways of Rose's, it's not her literal POV, but it's almost like her mind 
is imagining as well as it being actually what's happening. So um, again, it's like what's the information that the viewer's getting um, and, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, I think that makes sense because you are kind of telling the story with all of this mm -hmm. coverage and all of that information does play a role. Something else that I noticed in the framing to make um, Rose feel, um, you know, kind of trapped in a way, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right word, but anytime Phil is in a frame, he – he 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 controls it. He completely consumes it. He's massive in the frame. So you're oftentimes shooting up, but a lot of times he's just a big a big presence in that frame. And he's kind of a you know sleight of frame guy. He's just kind mm. of he's sort of mm. thin and sort of lanky in a way. But he is he completely consumes the frame. Rose, on the other hand, always seems to be really small in her locations. The 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 houses are the house is huge that she's in. She's got a ton of headroom. It always feels like the world around her is imposing on her, um, except for when she's in her original home, in her bedroom and in the, the kitchen. But everywhere else, it seems like the world is kind of, it, it's, it's, she has tons of space around her that makes her feel small in the frame. Um, and so I was noticing that there was quite a bit of playing with framing in this to support the overall themes of isolation, fearfulness, loneliness, um, did, did you employ those kinds of tricks or am I just reading into it too much? Um, I'm going to admit that actually wasn't one that we necessarily specifically um, talked about, but it, it's quite possible that it was in our kind of unconscious choices. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sometimes I go too far into these things and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I would love to actually see an analysis of, of whether we did that or not, but it's great that you, whether we did or not, what works is that that was the impression you you came away with. Um, so Absolutely. that, that we, I guess something worked there. Um, yeah. Phil, Phil has a very, uh, he's kind of magnetic and charming and also repulsive and complex and troubled and grieving. And there's so much going on with him, but the way he presents in the room, he, uh, yeah. I mean, he has amazing silhouette as well. So I think that there's something really iconic about, um, his whole look, like you see the hat and the fairy, the fairy chaps, and he's almost kind of a great little character. So we would, there's something powerful in that as well, seeing someone full body. Um, and I guess also like full credit to Benedict who really, um, I mean, you can't make that up with photography. That is, the energy in the room that is him um, really being in character um, the entire shoot. I didn't meet Benedict until after we'd wrapped, really. Um, so. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you if that if that was true, because you always hear these stories of, oh, the character, you know, the actor was in character th throughout the whole production. And it, it seems like just one of those things people will say uh, for press, because it's just it's one of those things people say. Was that true with Benedict Cumberbatch? What was he very much in character throughout the entire production? Absolutely, yeah. That was that was kind of unwavering, um, and uh, I'm not sure what he did on rap, but the times that I saw him um, when we're on uh, uh, when we're on set, it was um, it was. Phil and I, I can genuinely say I've only only recently met Benedict, who's about as polar opposite as you can as you can get. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's a it's a interesting relationship you have with the, between the cinematographer and the, usually the actors. But here you're not talking about an actor; you're talking about a character who is mm. um, not. Uh, yeah, you're interacting with Phil Burbank, who's who's not a. Um, <laughs> It's it's uh yeah it's his tricky character and um I think that what am I trying to say I'm trying to say that the the energy in the room maybe what you're responding to is is really what was there and you felt it and I don't necessarily think you can kind of create that presence with photography alone that is the camera photographing um what we were all kind of seeing and, and feeling on the day um, and, and yeah, a real presence. And then I, there's also layers of kind of, you know, lighting, lighting can, can do something and sound can do something, but, you know, the, the raw elements there is, is really Benedict um, bringing it. <laughs> yeah. What was your favorite scene to film in the power of the dog? It's mm. another great question. Um, or location. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes cinematographers, certainly you love the scene, you love the storytelling, but sometimes the location is just like, ah, oh, this is so fun to shoot mm -hmm. and it's just so rewarding. Yeah. The, and the barn was definitely that for me. Um, maybe slightly unexpectedly, but the barn is, it was just like an incredible place. You just wanted to hang out there, you know, this kind of a beautiful room with these gorgeous sight lines to the, to one side, it was the hills. The other side, it's the house. The other side, it's the yard where the horses are. The other side is, um, you know, the cowboys little kind of quarters were and it's shady in the day and there's wind blowing through and just, um, yeah, for a cinematographer, it's kind of a dream to have dark walls and then a big window, those, you know, or a big gap where the daylight comes in. Um, that's such a dream location. Then plus all that texture is like, um, I mean, just an incredible job from art department that, that space because they, they, I mean, they probably completed it a couple of weeks or so before we're shooting in it. And before that, it was a literally a, um, an empty, um, there was nothing there, but to, to make something feel so, lived in and so like it's been there it has history is I mean that's incredible work from Grant um Major and, and his team to the attention to detail and the scenic work and the aging and the you know, craftsmanship um to create that also in the middle of nowhere um yeah it's just a beautiful where space. did you where did you film we shot in this the location work was done in the south island of New Zealand um and and then we went um, back to the to the North Island to do the um, the interior stage work. So the the house um, the house interior was a set. The um, interior of the um, the bar and the restaurant um, were our two other other sets. But um, yeah, all all New Zealand. How many weeks did you have in that exterior location? weeks i want to say maybe six weeks um yeah but but jane and i had spent a lot of time down there already by that stage we felt very um comfortable in that on that property um we spent about a month storyboarding 
down down um we got a, a place to stay not far from there and would draw kind of during the morning and the and the day and then as the builders were leaving the site because they were in the middle of building it by that stage we would kind of cross over with them and um you know start to explore whatever they would were working on and and then just a lot of days wandering around the property walking and, and kind of just exploring angles light and and just being in the space as well um kind of feeling the I don't know, getting into getting into the the romance and the bubble of just being in that valley um at, in all different weather and um yeah so by the time we came to shooting Jane and I especially were very um felt like we knew the place uh enough to be able to take take opportunities when they came up like maybe it's going to be a storm and we know after a storm that there's incredible light on a certain ridge and we could send a camera um to make sure we capture that or know that the sunset's going to be overwhelming uh, underwhelming or, or amazing and we, you could know that by kind of the afternoon usually because it's you spend enough time in a place you get to really know the um yeah this the the weather and the the way that it um, not unlike how you get to know a person you yeah. really know it well the film is spectacular it looks absolutely amazing of course great acting great storytelling it just it was such a great film it's on netflix the power of the dog you guys can watch it right now if you haven't already and even if you have watch it again now that we've spoken with Ari. In fact, that is the that's the last thing I want to discuss with you is this idea of watch rewatchability. Because um I had read in something when I was doing my prep that you said, and let me find the exact quote if I have it here. Maybe it's not totally necessary. We can just kind of talk about the theme about it. But you had mentioned something in this article about you wanting the film to be able to be watched over and over again and um, kind of discovering new things as you watch it. And there were certain things that you mentioned in there that lend to this idea of rewatchability. Can you talk to us about that? And what are those elements that make a film able to be watched multiple times, in your opinion? Yeah, we talked, Jane and I talked a lot about this because it was one of our big kind of ambitions for the film um, was that how do you make a film that's like a, First of all, it's like a strongly retrospective experience. So you experience it as you're watching it and then afterwards you can kind of continue to experience it over the hours and days, maybe weeks since you've seen it and, and think back on the scenes. Gives you you want to um, your main urge after the film is to think about it. And then also what 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 kind of film makes you want to watch it a second time? Um and and for that second time to not just be the exact same flavor, but it's like the same meal, but a different flavor. It's the exact same thing you watched already, but you, you, your thoughts as you're watching it, it's completely different knowing what you know, or appreciating things you miss. So for us, we, we were operating from a, from a, a hope or a theory that, um, if a film doesn't tell you specifically, um, what to think or feel at every beat, that there's not one um, clear interpretation of of a relationship, of a scene, of a, of a moment, um, and you become quite a very active viewer. You're really watching um, and you're making your own conclusions um, that 
those are the kind of films that, that don't have just one interpretation that, that make you go and want to watch it again and, and have a different interpretation this time. And also it is super satisfying, even in our real life when we, we take a few bits of information, we jump to a conclusion about someone or anything, or, you know, and then and then we're proven completely wrong. You, you see someone, you meet someone for the first time or you cross paths with them and then as you get to talking to them, if you're curious, you might find out something completely surprising that you didn't know at all. And there's something like really satisfying about that, about being wrong or surprised. Um, but it's, it's the most satisfying when, when we ourselves jump to that conclusion, not that we were misled or tricked, but we joined the dots and we joined them kind of wrong. Um, and re retrospectively, like rejoining them is really satisfying. We like that changes everything the other day i was in uber and i got chatting to the driver and you know turns out he used to be a airline pilot somewhere in middle east or somewhere and i was like well i did not see that i did not i'd taken some information from you and your car i jumped to a conclusion and that changes everything about what i just jumped to and and it's so satisfying to be like, wow, tell me about that. What, how did that <laughs> tell me? You just get so like, uh, it, it elicits this curiosity that, that kind of snowballs and then your senses get really attuned to like picking up more information yourself, which is a very different feeling than if you had of um, someone tells you something and, or like you get some information and then you get some other information and that, that first information was too misleading or, or like a lie, then it's not a good feeling that you, you don't want to feel like the rug's being pulled out from under you. You want to feel like you were, you mistakenly um, jumped to a conclusion too quickly. Um, yeah. And then there's obviously some, the, the ending has this kind of gut dropping kind of shock. Um, and, but it also doesn't come completely out of nowhere. So there, there are along the way, um, very subtle kind of hints and signs that if you watch again, you might um, be able to interpret a scene in a completely different way. Peter's character especially is a real, um, a real uh, special one to watch, to watch again because in many ways he's, he's kind of a double agent and is a pretty secretive guy, but he also doesn't change at all. It's just our, it's our um, perception of him that changes as we're watching. Um, yeah, I can yeah, talk about I, this for hours. <laughs> if that were, it sounds like that was your goal, and I can tell you, goal has been achieved for sure. <laughs> the movie is awesome. The Power of the Dog, it's on Netflix right now, so you guys can check it out. Ari Wegner, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll put a link to your Instagram in our show notes so everybody can check you out and um, all of your future projects. We'd love to have you back, so please let us know when you start promoting your next project. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right, I want to thank Ari Wegner, ASC, Director of Photography of The Power of the Dog, for coming on the show and talking to us today. I hope you guys learned a lot. I know I certainly did. And thank you both, uh, Christopher and who else asked a question? It was Christopher and JD on Instagram. We really appreciate your questions and always love getting questions from our listeners. So please send them in. We post about our upcoming episodes on Instagram so you can uh, send in your questions as well. 
I want to thank our sponsor, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. You can find out more at gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy. And don't forget, you get 10% off with code GOCREATIVE10. So check that out for yourself. Of course, I want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com for producing this show and Dave Siegel at seagullsound.com for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. Of course, I want to encourage you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well as YouTube where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.